Napa know-how. This month, at your local Napa Auto Care Center, when you get a premium oil change with a cabin air filter, you also get a $15 mail-in rebate, which means the pros do the job and you get paid. Wait, what? Get your premium oil change and a cabin air filter and save 15 bucks at Napa Auto Care. Quality parts installed by the pros. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Care Centers. Offer ends 4 Tuesday, November 15th, at Waterford's magnificently restored Theatre Royal. And with just 72 hours to curtain up, it's dress rehearsal night for the Barrack Street Concert Band's Disney Movie Spectacular. With additional string and keyboard players Keith MacDonald, Mark Robinson and Wayne Brown, joining a full complement of band members on stage, a year of planning for musical director Mark Fitzgerald and four months rehearsal for the band are about to pay off. The band are also joined for the first time tonight by singers Kaylee Quinlan, Mary O'Connor, Megan Cassidy, Michael Joseph, and last but by no means least, by a 12-part Mickey Mouse chorus line. Remarkably, all 12 Mickey Mouses are the children, grandchildren, nephews or nieces of members of the band. Remarkable maybe, but hardly surprising for an organisation where families such as the Bretts, the Simpsons and the Burks, the McGraths, the Nolans, the Powers and the Chesters have been the backbone of the band for generations. Between them, these families have given many hundreds of years service, in some cases stretching all the way back to the 19th century. Billy McGrath, Jeff Brett and Phil Simpson, whose combined service amounts to an astonishing 177 years, proudly trace their lineage. My grandfather uh, joined the band, I would say it was 1890, and he was uh, president for a good many years. And after him then, well, my own father joined, uh, uh, but the longest serving member of the family after that was my uncle Jack. After that again then, my eldest brother Jackie uh, joined the band for some time, but he didn't last, he didn't stay in it anyway. Teddy joined it, I think just 41 or 42, he was there before me like, you know. After me, I got my sons in it, my son Georgie Brett, my other son Paul Brett. Look, there's a fort up there, look, see it? The family there, look, the grandchildren and all. That was sitting on the park a couple of years ago. I'm in it, my two sons on it, and my six, six grandchildren, I think, are in it there, look. Teddy had two, Timmy and George, and I also have a nephew, my sister, young Philip Brian Turtle. He's in it as well. It's lovely to have it. Even when I'm gone, she'll be there. My granduncle Billy Simpson was the president of the band, and my uncle Jack Simpson was the piccolo player in the band. Down through the years, then, Nicky Cody was in the band for about 10 or 15 years. He's my first cousin. And then his brother, Pascal Cody, he must be about 40 years in the band, maybe more. He's my first cousin also. At the moment, my sister Mary... Mary Burke is a member of the band. She's about 30 years in the band. And at one stage, she had her four sons in the band. Stephen Burke, Jackie Power, Willie Chester, Michael Nolan and Timmy Brett recall images forged in childhood and burnt forever in the memory. My grandfather, Thomas Simpson, he was in the Hopes band and he was the bandmaster in that. And we'd go down to the house. We were only living up the road from them. Uh, anytime you go down to the house, he'd be playing a flute or looking over a bit of music or even writing a bit of music or whatever. So we kind of grew up with music. I can remember that old band room and instruments actually hanging off the wall on hooks, cornets. 
they didn't have cases apparently and of course the big attraction was the drums in the corner everybody got a turn to go over and hit the drum for a while sometimes there's an accordion player I remember it could have been old Jimmy Burns or something and he played the accordion we all sang songs and we put on party hats and it was a real Christmassy kind of a thing and that is actually the first memory I have of the Barrick Street Band I think I was able to march before I even joined the band because coming from the house in Lower Newtown up to Barrick Street the old band room in Barrick Street of a Sunday when the band would be playing I'd be marching along beside me, my father like I was only probably up to his up to his knee at, this, at the time I'd say I was about maybe six or five or six years of age so I've been in and out of the band room since then really The uniform was you know like a, a sacred item in the house no one touched it it was well looked after um, locked away in the wardrobe and it was taken out then and warm with pride and it was something that was very special to my father and something that you know he had the utmost respect for every Sunday morning we used to come up here with, with the father and Jeff drinking a bottle of lemonade and a packet of crisps for an hour and a half and then when, when the band was over then we'd come in here and have a play around we had a table tennis table and we had a little potting green my father had the Morris Minor I remember going home Sunday's three o'clock, half three. You go home and sometimes the dinner will be in the, the back of the fire. 35 years later, Timmy is both keenly aware and proud of the members of his family who went before him. In the older days, everybody knew who Teddy Brett was, who Jeff Brett was. You know, even before I was born, they, they knew who these people were. So if I'm only about now and people hear my name and say, oh, you're Teddy Brett's son or you're Jeff Brett's nephew. So you'd feel proud of that. And like, I suppose the band has a lot to do with that you know it has everything to do with it really because it's, it's like you're carrying on the mantle for, for your father you know so that's very important Timmy's cousin and Jeff Brett's son George firmly believes the family that plays together stays together I suppose with Jeff and I we've always had something to discuss always had something to talk about always had something to argue about when it comes to music or bands and for me it helped me stay closer to my entire family we're meeting every week I'm seeing Paul up here every week. I'm seeing his kids every week. My own kids are here. I'm seeing Jeff every week. Money wouldn't pay for that. And even if you take it out from my immediate family, take it over into Teddy's family, we have a closeness with that family, that entire family, purely and utterly because of the link to the band. At just 17, George's twin daughters, Ashling and Orla, are 10-year veterans of the band. And just as 40 and more years before, their grandfather Jeff introduced his sons to the delights of the band room, George in time would repeat history. We'd come up to the band room with Dad on Sunday mornings and we'd just sit in and listen. Like we'd sit at the back and then we'd stay like after band show in the back room with all the lads. <laughs> I think it was kind of a family tradition, so we were, we were going to be in the band anyway. So Dad just bringing us up got us used to it. But it was going to happen anyway because Granddad was in it, Teddy was in it. Yeah, and he, one day Dad just came home and he just had two clarinets for us. He goes, look, you're going to learn how to play the clarinet. And we were like, oh, cool. Like, we had no choice in the matter of what instrument. But no, it's, I love the clarinet now. It's really good. Then we started getting lessons then. So his plan, his plan worked kind of, didn't it? I actually never even thought about joining it. Like, it was just, I just assumed it was going to happen. 40-year veteran Willie Chester's lineage in the band can be traced back to the 1920s. And his children, Willie Jr. and Gillian, are now members. But while Willie is proud that the line will continue, he believes that in the end, it all comes down to the music. It is a great feeling to see your children taking up music. Not just that they're following in your footsteps, but I, I know now in hindsight what, what I'm after getting out of it over the years will, will stand to those kids now, you know what I mean? And any kid taking up music. It's a great thing to be able to pass it on to, your, to any children, but particularly, I suppose, your own. You think back and say, well, why did I spend 40 years or 50 years in the band? And that's really the reason why. You can die happy knowing that your, your children are 
are, are going to enjoy music for the rest of their lives. You walk into this big hall and nobody can talk and the adjudicator just rings a bell and then you start. There's no talking, nothing, you just sit and play. Flautist and band secretary Avril Kelly's stark description of the moments leading to a competitive performance. Like them or leave them, competitions are an integral part of band culture the world over. And the folklore of every band that ever marched is replete with near-mythic accounts of great victories and near-misses, and almost always of the great day out. For reasons best known to himself, legendary conductor Jimmy Smith kept his troops out of the battlefield for the best part of two decades. But in the summer of 1981, under Phil Simpson's baton, the band returned to the fray at the famed Clonakilty Band Festival. Clonakilty is arguably the mecca of the competition circuit, but as Paddy Robinson recalls, there was less to some bands than met the eye. I remember playing in bands down there. We played against one band. They finished in front of us, but we noticed that a lot of the band members had to rush off the stage and were questioned as to why, and they were saying, oh, they had played a gig that night or something, and it was half uh, an actual an orchestra a known band at the time and there was a number of the members playing with them and we were all surprised one of the biggest orchestras in the country we were told who they were and this kind of stuff that went on fellas putting in packed bands and getting in stairs to play with the band Whatever Paddy's misgivings the band has competed regularly over the years and has a distinguished record in national and regional championships but despite the impressive trophy hall, there are divergent views in the band on the wisdom of taking part in competitions, with Mary Burke and Tommy Keane making equally valid, if opposing, arguments. Phil was probably the first to bring the band to a competition. You know, I could be wrong about that, but I remember my father saying, bad idea. You know, and he obviously had reasons for it. As I said, they used to go to competitions, the hopes band, but um, I don't know. I don't like competitions. I get very nervous about it. The practising, I suppose, is grand, but sometimes you could spend months practising at these things and you never play them again outside the competition, you know. So to me, it's kind of a bit of a waste. To me, a band is to practise and play out for the public. I would never consider myself a good musician, so when when we take on uh, new works for older guys like me, we find it quite difficult. And uh, even when we play for national championships and stuff like that, it's difficult. It's very difficult. But you try and you try and you try. It's all about trying and striving for greater things. And if it works, it works. And that's what we strive for. And it also, when you when you've done something excellent in your life, and it might be only once out of a hundred times that you get a good performance out of yourself or you feel you've got it that's what it's all worth you strive for that you spend all your life going for that in 1994 the band under conductor Niall O'Connor entered the National Senior Band Championships for the first time Niall aged just 19 when he took over from Liam Daly in 1989 and who retains the distinction of being the band's youngest ever conductor remembers the painstaking hours of practice for the big event. I remember doing so many, you know, sectional rehearsals so just take clarinets, just trumpets, just go through go through the whole band come up to competition. Sometimes we'd even have a, a weekend of rehearsals where we might get down some tutors from Dublin and who'd take various sections of the band and then we'd put it all together. So this massive, um, huge um, uh, work goes into it and huge commitment from the members as well. Uh, you know, it really involves a lot of time. Niall's choice of music for the competition, Gala composed by Guy Wolfenden, was an ambitious one. 
His brother Cormac and Willie Chester recalled some concerns in the ranks in the weeks leading up to the competition, but it seems Niall held his nerve. The piece of music was very, very difficult and the majority of the band members, I think, thought Niall was crazy at the time picking it. The general consensus, I think, was that the part was just beyond the, the capabilities of us at the time. We thought, you know, we're not going to be able to play these. Months of practice went into him, months of practice. You know, people went to him and said, you know, spoke to Niall and said, look, as a friend, the army bands like, mightn't be able to play these pieces. But uh, I do remember that close and close to the competition, you could hear it come together, you know. And you were saying, well, it wasn't that long ago now and <laughs> it was sounding dreadful. The competition took place on April 10th, 1994, in Wesley College, Dublin. Clarinet player Stephen Burke remembers the moment of truth. You're never expecting it. Like, the way they do it, I suppose, like all competitions, they call out third, then they call out second, and then you're thinking, ah, another year. You're kind of used to, look, being pipped by, by a better band in most cases. And then when we heard Barrick Street Concert Band from Waterford, the roof, the roof lifted. It was, it was a great occasion. Looking back, Niall, who was just 23 at the time, remembers the victory as an important milestone in his tenure as conductor. It would have been a, a really important point for me in the band. You know, you, you'd have won competitions before and things, but nothing like that. Uh, so it was certainly a validation for me. It did wonders to my confidence. And I'm sure the confidence of the band, I'm sure they were thrilled as well. I mean, they're, they're the ones that actually performed on the day. And Timmy Brett reflects on what the win meant for the old gang in the band. It was a great day for them because we were young like it wouldn't have meant as much to us but to them boys like in the band all their lives it was a great feather in our caps and we were delighted for them more than nothing else you know Timmy's cousin George believes the win was a critical turning point for the band winning that competition changed the band forever it now started to believe in itself up until then we were also rands now they started to believe in their abilities so that really opened up everything in here I thought because we had the courage of our convictions be able to say, hey, look, we're up there with the best of them. But if that victory and the many that preceded and followed it are enshrined forever in the folklore of the band, a very different kind of competition, one for which no prize ever has or will be awarded, has been keenly contested for generations. Barrick Street Concert Band is just one of five Waterford bands, each of which has contributed richly to the cultural life of the city, and each of which is immersed in and rightly protective of its own traditions, its own mythologies, its own collective memory. For the most part, the rivalry between the bands is both natural and healthy, and these days the annual Mast Bands concert, inspired by Thomas Francis Marr, Fife and Drum bandsman Jar O'Brien, is evidence of the relatively harmonious relationship between the bands. Historically, however, that rivalry has been intense and often bitter, and nowhere more so than between the Barrick Street Band and the City of Waterford Brass, formerly known as the St. Patrick's Brass Band. Veteran Barrick Street Bandsmen Billy McGrath and Larry Mackey trace the roots of the divide. There was very bitter rivalry, and, and it was all political. This band now, it declared itself non-political, it won't play as a a political meeting or anything for any party. It was declared non-political and ever since we don't do any political engagements at all. But it was known as a Redmondine band then, so that it was leaning that way in years gone by. The St. Patrick's band started off as a Thomas Francis Mayer Brass and Reed band and they say there was a, a carry-on from the original band which is known as the Mayers and they were a Sinn Féin band and they were reformed as the Thomas Francis Mayer Brass and Reed and then in 1945 they went to the Thomas Francis Mayer Brass Band.
At that time, it must have been a split in the bags he banned because they were noted as recognised, although they had declared itself non-political in '32, I think. But there was a split in the band and a good few of them went down to St. Pat's in '45. And um, I suppose since then, or even before that, that, there's great rivalry between the two bands. If the 1940s exodus from Barrick Street to St. Pat's was politically driven, it seems that further departures in the following decade had a distinctly different motive. Fintan O'Carroll was the conductor of the St. Pat's band. He was also the conductor of the, the festival orchestra. And being that, he, had, he decided who was going to play in the, in the orchestra in the pit. And it turned out a lot of people went to the St. Pat's purely to play in the orchestra. Now, that's my belief. And I have the facts and figures that will prove it. But um, we lost a couple of members who had started off in the Barracksy Band and were known to be very good musicians but went away to England. When they came back, they went back into St. Pat's for that reason. There's one of them that went, he went through Nellar Hall, which is the, the British Army School of Music, from the Barracksy Band. Came back, he played the cymbals in the St. Pat's. But he played the piccolo in the, the festival hours. Three decades later, the divisions between the band still ran deep, as Dubliner Liam Daly discovered when shortly after he took the baton at Barrick Street, he launched an inter-band ensemble, comprising young musicians from Mount Sion Silver Band, Barrick Street and St. Pat's. We decided to form a group. It's called the Independent Brass Ensemble. And it gave opportunities from, for young brass players from the three bands to come together and play. And still be proud of the of the of the uniform we wore, whether it be Pat's Mount Sinai or, or Barrick Street. But I remember um, I was called into a committee meeting, and I was, I was asked to make up my mind if I wanted to go to the other side, I'd have to leave the Barrick Street band. And uh, and that kind of that kind of hit me for six, to be quite honest with you. I slowly understood, you know, the the importance of identity to the band, and um, there was a lot of. Rivalry. There was a lot of animosity. There was a lot of history, a lot of family history there. And while I could understand it, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. But four years earlier, in 1983, for at least one young musician, the ice was beginning to melt. The planning and staging of the National Band Championships being held for the first time in Waterford required the old enemy to meet. And to Barrick Street Committee member Jackie Power fell the task. I was invited up to a meeting in a house in Hillview with Harry Quinlan, who was a very prominent St. Pat's member, and David Grant, conductor of the band. I was kind of handed a poison chalice sculptor because the other guys on the committee wouldn't go. So I said, yeah, I'll go. We had our meeting. His wife brought sandwiches in and then Harry brought out the cans of Guinness and we sat down and we had a chat about music. And I realised at that stage that these guys were much more knowledgeable than I was at the time about music because they're talking about great pieces of music that there is out there and what they play and what we play. And I think the hand of friendship was actually extended to me that night and I didn't find any problem with them at all. And it kind of opened my eyes up to say, you know, we're all just the same really, you know. The same maybe, but still different. 28 years after his conversion, Jackie feels free to tell a joke. A particular member of the aforementioned band was heading out once again on a Sunday morning to play with the band. And his wife, being in a rather nasty mood this morning, said, There you go again, out the door, that bloody band. Sometimes I think you care more about that band than you do about me. And he turned around and said, Listen, love, I care more about the Barry Street band. (laughs) 
an idea about you. <laughs> Traditional rivalries notwithstanding, what the bands collectively bring to the streets and concert venues of the city utterly transcend their differences. But on the subject of what it is they bring, the bandsmen and women at Barrick Street are admirably reticent, preferring, it seems, to let their music do the talking. TV Honan, director of Spree, reflects on the place of the town band in the context of other cultures and salutes the Barrick Street band's acute sense of its identity. I think what are known as the town bands, they're a huge thing in the history and in the social fabric of a community. You know, the Kilfenora Cayley Band celebrated being 100 years old last year, and it's the same tradition handed down in a small village in North Clare. In the early days of Spree, we had a Tycho drumming band from outside Osaka. They were of exactly the same tradition. They were the Barrick Street Band, or the Waterford City Brass, or the De La Salle Pipe band or the Yellow Road band of their little town in northern Japan. So it, it goes far wider than the music, even though the music is at the heart of it. The music is what binds these people together. But on top of that, they're very much part of the social fabric of their place. I think that's one of the great things I like about the band. They are absolutely, totally rooted in their tradition. Going back through the generation, they know who they are. They know where they come from. Not just in family terms, but in music terms as well. But on top of that then, what makes them really exciting is that they are prepared to take that tradition and from time to time when the right opportunity comes along push out the boundaries of what's expected of them and what they expect of themselves and move into other areas. Michael Cody is a poet, retired school teacher and occasional conductor of the Carrick and Shure Brass Band with which his family have been connected for several generations. Music can say things that, that are virtually inexpressible in any other way. And when a particular aspect of a local tradition, of local inheritance, is interwoven with music and with that particular sound of a band, it can really heighten the emotion of an occasion and give us an almost inexpressible sense of location, of identity, of shared memory, that kind of thing which is so potent if you have lived within the community for, and, and uh, kind of feel the, uh, the archaeology of the band, it can have a kind of a deep power that goes beyond the actual quality of the music itself. The changing culture changed how this kind of thing can or cannot happen. And in a way, the fact that we still have what we could roughly call traditional brass bands is, is wonderful and a kind of a miraculous thing that they have survived and that that spirit has survived. The Mayor of Waterford, Councillor Pat Hayes, recalls a time when the town bands provided a rare musical outlet when other doors were shut fast. And the city's first citizen paints a vivid and compelling word picture of a time now past but forever etched in his memory. I'm reminded of Denny Corcoran's song, My City of Music. I just think that that was based on the bands really when the arts, to be honest about it, in water was probably uh, belonged to the privilege nearly, except for the bands. The bands were, were the general public. They were the ordinary boy on the street who joined them at the time and marched to the music of the city. I have the fondest memories of Sunday mornings, and be it that they're on Barrick Street or maybe up in the hill or wherever they played, and hear the sound of the band music wafting across the Coit City streets people standing on corners arms folded sitting on the windowsill 
listening to the Barrick Street band playing out. I suppose as many a woman on Barrick Street ter- Terrace said, I wish that band would go away and get them in off my windowsill. Before they went in for a, a couple of art stouts, Barrick Street band, memories of quality music, of fun, of enjoyment. Men with shoulders squared heading out to Gilcoan to shout for the blues and children dancing left and right behind them. And their music, as I say, wafting across the city. Long may they reign. God, they were great and are great. Long may you continue, Barry Street. God bless everyone. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And welcome to the Theatre Royal for the Barrack Street Concert Band's Disney Movie Spectacular. As the curtain comes down and patrons emerge into the cold of the night, it's clear that the band's annual concert has warmed their hearts. I touched wonderful. I thoroughly enjoyed every moment of it. The whole thing was wonderful. I loved them. I've always loved them. It was brilliant. Great. They were fabulous. Excellent. Absolutely brilliant. And kids loved it. Excellent. Excellent. Very good, Jess. I thought it was amazing. Very good. The band was brilliant and the singers were very good. And especially Mary O'Connor, which is my mum. <laughs> I really love them. They're very good. Put their heart and soul into it. I have to say it was absolutely fantastic. I've been following this band since 1968 and it's like the good wine. They're getting better <laughs> every day. Here, here, up the Barry Street concert. Meanwhile, back on stage, as the band members pack their instruments and prepare to celebrate, musical director Mark Fitzgerald finds time for a moment of quiet reflection on a job well done. Very pleased. Yeah, very pleased. Over the moon. Standing ovation at the end, what more do you want? Even, even during the concert, you kind of get a well of emotion, you know. Um, geez, I actually made this happen. The band 
came up another level played fantastic uh, I think everyone have enjoyed it it's a, it's a big occasion for the band it's the biggest concert we've ever tried to put on we all put an awful lot of hard work into it and it's, it's paid off big time The concert is the culmination of four months of twice weekly rehearsals alongside the band's regular programme of engagements membership of the band entails a considerable ongoing commitment but if the members themselves are to be believed what they give to the band and to the community it serves is far outweighed by what they receive in return I love the music, the playing of the music and the trying to play it, you know. I think it's the thing of playing together, kind of, you know, and maybe have a word or two with whoever you're near or the people there, you know. It's just just something that I think it's just something maybe is in you, I don't know. I enjoy the music and probably more importantly, um, I've made some very, very close and good friends. Okay, there are nights when you don't want to come, but when you do come up, you're glad you did. Uh, as I said, I've made some very, very good friends and they will remain friends for the rest of my life. It means a lot to myself. I'd be lost without the band. You always have friends in the band. We're friends in the band and we're friends outside band that you can be with. So I love going down the band. Somewhere to go. As the years go by, I'm actually enjoying it more. I'm actually enjoying the music side of it more. Just to come up and play the notes. I remember coming up for months on end and getting nothing out of it and all of a sudden you get that one practice or that one engagement where it all clicks together and you feel absolute joy it doesn't happen very often but to get that oh my god the band has done more for me than I could ever repay it for I've grown up in the band since I was a young lad and they've seen the pimples the tears the tantrums right the way through to when I was quite sick couple of years ago. In, in those 25 years, the band has encompassed everything about my life. I suppose it's, it's, it's love. Love the band. When we lived in Australia, um, every Sunday, myself and Veronica, 11 o'clock, half 11, we'd be thinking band, even though we were on the other side of the world, we were still thinking of band practice. No matter what troubles you have or uh, you're thinking about something or there's somebody that's been sick or someone has died or something like that and even the older crowd that are gone before me, like Teddy in particular, he always used to say, like, music tames a savage heart, like, you know. You'll, you'll sit down, you'll play a bit of music and everything else is forgotten about. For Willie Chester, the twice-weekly hour-and-a-half in Green Street was especially treasured. With my eldest son, Ian, um, special needs, and like he was 24-hour care for myself and Teresa when Ian was growing up. He's in residential care now. But when he was young, like it was, I'd come home from work in the evenings and I'd have to take over and Teresa could have a few hours sleep and, you know, it was, it was um, shift work. And uh, Tuesday and Sunday were set aside for me for that hour-and-a-half. That was my time, you say, and, and to be able to come in to, to do something that you really enjoyed doing. You're making the most of that bit of time that you had, and it, it just keeps you going. It keeps you going. If the camaraderie among band members is primarily founded on a shared love of music, it's reinforced by a healthy respect for what might, to borrow a phrase, be termed the supplementary benefits of membership. Just off the rehearsal hall in the band's Green Street headquarters is the Inner Sanctum, a small room whose twin function of music library and informal bar neatly unites the musical and social priorities of the band. For many years, the bar was the kingdom of George Brett's Uncle Teddy. Teddy was so concerned about the significance and the importance of that bar in there because he said that's more than just a place for a few boys to go and have a drink after rehearsals. He said that's part of the social fabric of the band and don't ever underestimate that. If you lose the social aspects to the band, you're going to struggle with your musical aspects. And how true he is. Because if you've got a group of 40 to 50 people 
and they're all from all walks of life they're all doing different things and so for some people it's the bare hobby they come in and they do their couple of hours rehearsal and they do their engages and they go other people they get more involved and for those people to have that outlet in there with a couple of drinks of a Sunday morning it's great For as far back as even the father of the band Jeff Brett can remember the band's annual knees up would take place on Christmas Day what Jeff describes as our little party was historically known as Daddy's Day Clean the cathedral and then come out of the cathedral and then you go to you go to the Arkeane and you march around the wards all the different wards and you play something and it could be six o'clock by the time you get back to Bandrum. And we'd have a little party, yeah, the party. But the party go on late. So Mr Smith says, No, this wasn't fair to the wives. He said, you're out all the year, he says. And he says, You're going home, he says, uh, Christmas Day, he says. And uh, you're after leaving the house, he says, around uh, ten o'clock in the morning and you don't get back there uh, to your wives on maybe twelve o'clock at night. So he changes to the Sunday before Christmas to make sure that the, the, the lads were free for home uh, on Christmas Day, like, you know. These days, Daddy's Day takes place on the third Sunday in December. As the name implies, Daddy's Day was traditionally a male-only preserve. But as Larry Mackey explains, the tide of change was beginning to flow up Green Street. Well, for a long time, they wouldn't accept it and had to put out Maura and Mickey Nolan's wife and they didn't want to go but they had to leave at that stage but, you know because it's all, it all males and I uh, guess no women but that changed after a couple of years they got up on their high heels and started laying down the law <laughs> so now there's women and, and men As Larry and all the old gang would acknowledge the commitment they were able to give to the band for so long was made possible only through the support and blessing of the generations of women affectionately known as the band widows Nellie Chester, whose husband Billy served in the band for more than 50 years, remembers an encounter on Hennessy's Road, and in a telling remark, sums up the extraordinary generosity of so many of her fellow widows. Well, the first time I heard about it, I was in the clinic in Hennessy's Road. The lady sitting next to me, I don't know who she was, and she said to me, um, wouldn't you have a medical card? I said, good God, no, I haven't. And she said, shouldn't you a widow? I said, no. She said, I've never seen a husband with you. Oh, I said to her, I said, what you call a band widow? Because Tuesday, Friday, Sunday morning, the soccer season is starting Sunday. The band went to the soccer. They could do worse, I suppose. It was their garden, their glory, the band, wasn't it? But if the door to Daddy's Day and the inner sanctum has been open to women for many years now, band secretary Avril Kelly wasn't exactly rushing to the party. My first Daddy's Day was last Christmas. <laughs> After 20 years... We decided because they were saying that girls never really come up to the band room, you know, after to socialise or anything like that after the last gig of the year. So um, since I was on the committee, they asked me to kind of get a few girls together and come up. So myself and Oni and Elaine, the three of us came up and we had a great time. In the band room, as in the world beyond its doors, the march of time is relentless. Almost 60 years after his uncle Jack showed him through the doors of the old band room in Barrack Street, Billy McGrath played out for the last time. I was kind of running out of puff, you know, health-wise, and just was time to call a halt. I had a chat with the doc. I was having a bit of bother, and I had a chat with him. He advised me, and when I thought the time was all right, that there was a couple of fellas there to jump in there, away I go. That's uh, last Christmas, 12 months. Daddy's there. I'd go up here and had an old sing-song. 
number to show. For Jeff Brett, retirement as a playing member came gradually. I started on the trombone, I finished on the bass because I had problems with roses. And the doctor told me, they said, I would have to give up playing the brass instrument because of the ulcers, you know. So I was on two months what I do, what I'd finish with the band or not. And Philip Simpson was conductor at the time, and he called me and said, look, he says, why don't you go back? Why don't you go into the bass, into the drum section? And just through him, I went into the drum section, and that's where I ended up. Phil's good counsel extended Jeff's playing career by the best part of two decades. At a concert in St. John's Church on the night of his 80th birthday, Jeff played out for the last time. Looking back, Jeff and his old comrade Billy McGrath choose to celebrate and not regret. I got endless enjoyment from it. Really, it got more out of the band than ever I put in it. The enjoyment and fulfilment that I got out of it, it was brilliant. I never regret it. I have to say that. Never regret it. One moment of it. Never. The band was my life. They know that kind of thing. band was my life. If the passing of the years accounts for most members' move to the back benches of the band, veteran clarinet player Larry Mackey's leave-taking came ten years ago in the wake of the tragic death in a car accident of his 18-year-old daughter, Ellen. I haven't blown a nose since. Just a grief, Jim. Couldn't, uh, couldn't bring myself to it. Music, playing music is emotional anyway, you know, but... I wouldn't never have it. I couldn't, uh, couldn't think about it. And then when I did start thinking about going back, it was too late. I wasn't. I wouldn't be able to. I would. I say I forgot all the fingers by now. I'd have to go learn and I can learn all the tricks that I used to know. Like things have changed. Time moves on. United in death as it is in life, the Barrack Street Concert Band played at Ellen Mackey's funeral mass, an honour reserved for band members and their loved ones. Pastor Cody came up to me and said anything I wanted, they'd do it. So they played the Mass in St. Paul's. I think I asked them to play a certain, um, certain song, and they played it. Cavalier Rustican. It's a moving piece, right? it's nice. Yeah. I say very emotional, very emotional. On September 10, 2006, the death occurred of Teddy Brett, a man who in its long history was probably Barrick Street's most revered bandsman. He was the real president. He was Mr. Barrick Street Band. He gave his life to the band, gave his life, and it'll be a hard act to follow. Teddy was lovely. It was the band, the band, the band, kind of, you know, and make sure everything was right. And, you know, you need people like that, don't you, to keep it right, you know, not to be leaving things slip or anything, you know. But, yeah, I love Teddy. I think Teddy's was his work, his work ethic in the band. The amount of work that he he done behind the scenes and never never looked for any recognition for it. You know, and that was from running the band, organising social events, um, making sure people had uniforms and, you know. And then, like, he was just a genuine fella at the back of it. He had, he had time for everybody. When he died, something, something in the band died as well because Teddy was a legend. Teddy certainly will never be forgotten in this band. If you come up here any Sunday or Tuesday night, he, he's able to be mentioned at least once, if not more. Himself and Jeff, I have to say that. Like, um, I see, I, I probably took it for granted a little bit because he was my father. So when I get older now, I do know, like in high regard, he was felt and, and still is, even though he's passed and gone. Like, his name will always be synonymous with the Bragg Street Band. Teddy Brett's remains were taken to the Sacred Heart Church on the Folly on the evening of September 11th, and two days later, the band paid its final tribute to their comrade.
My name is Mark Fitzgerald. Have you heard of the Barrick Street Concert Band? Yeah, I conduct it. I'm the man that waved the stick, yeah? Yeah, so what this is all about, this is like a kind of like a project between your school, St. Paul's, and the Barrick Street Concert Band. Okay, so the idea is from this morning, okay, well, let's say from next Friday morning, so I'm going to give you some registration forms to bring home, and I want your parents to fill them out. And from that day, you'll be a member of the Barrick Street Band. Ah, oh, cool. Okay. <laughs> Friday, September 23rd, St. Paul's Primary School, Liz Duggan. Midway through rehearsals for the band's November concert, musical director Mark Fitzgerald takes time out to shape the future. With the entire membership of the band's junior section now gone forward to the senior ranks, finding new blood is an urgent priority. In the nature of things, of the boys blowing their first tentative notes here this morning, few enough are likely to be playing out when the band celebrates its 150th anniversary in nine years' time. But the hope is that some will. In parallel with the pilot project at St. Paul's, the band also holds classes for young members at its Green Street bandroom. Mark and youth liaison officer Cormac O'Connor trace the path to the ranks of the senior band. We have a, a, a good troop of kids now in here at the moment, maybe about 16, 17 kids, but we need to follow on from that. We need this conveyor belt system where we're bringing in a certain amount every year. Basically the way I've been working is we, if, they're, if they're complete beginners, we start them off on recorder. We might keep them on that for maybe six months. Then we try and get them onto a band instrument, whether it be a woodwind instrument, like a flute or a clarinet or a trumpet or percussion. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a whole choice there for them. Rather than going straight into a junior band, initially we're going to have an ensemble group playing a, a standard of music that um, will be within their grasp and it's good to get them listening to each other and playing together and that will be like a stepping stone going into the junior band which will be a, a step up again and um, a wider range of music hopefully then that'll be another stepping stone to the, the senior band Ashling and Orla Brett, at 17 well-placed to judge, are under no illusions about the difficulty of attracting new blood to the band. It's going to be really difficult because most young children aren't really interested in playing in a, in a band. like Only like it, guitars and stuff. Yeah, it's not really the cool thing to do. You care about what your friends think. So yeah. If someone in school said that's really uncool, then you'd be like, oh right, is it? I don't know, you just have to get a big bunch of them and then they all make friends and then they'll go up together. So, yeah, it will be hard. But their fellow band members, 19-year-old Paul Carlton and 16-year-old Willie Chester Jr., are optimistic. There's a generalisation, I suppose, of young people that they won't be into this, but you go into the schools and stuff around, I'm sure you'll find there'll be a certain section that you will get, and I'm pretty confident the band would be able to find new members in there and keep it taken over. Well, I think I think it's unique. Like I was saying, it's not particularly cool, but my friends think it's just unique. Like, you know, it's, like they'll pop the, the odd joke about it, but... At the end of the day, like, it's, it's different from what anyone else is doing. And as to what kind of band will play out on the morning of the 150th anniversary, Mark Fitzgerald's ambition is clear-cut. My vision is to add more instrumentation to the band. We have a full-size concert band here, but we're missing certain instruments like bassoons. We have an oboe. I'd like to have maybe two more, uh, maybe a karangle. I'd like to have a full rhythm section, a full-time keyboard player, a string bass player, and bring it up to a standard of um, a full-size symphonic wind band. That would be my ideal vision. Hopefully it'll happen in my time. That's, that's what I'm going to drive for. And it, it'll be for the betterment of the band and the, and the betterment of the people within the band because they'll enjoy it more. And 
for the people that are coming through. They can see for themselves, people are really enjoying this. I want to be part of that. Notwithstanding the success of the recent concert, interim president Michael Rowe is concerned to raise the profile of the band in a city and society which have changed beyond recognition in the space of a generation. I think the community recognition is not what it used to be. Waterford's not the same place as what it used to be. You know, when we're going playing downtown, a lot of people don't know who we are. Same as St. Patrick's Day, a lot of people don't know who we are. You know, we are still very, very important to the community of Waterford. I would like to see it being an awful lot better. Telling people who we are again. Because unfortunately, we're not a marching band really anymore. And we're not, we're not tangible. We're not in the people's eye day in and day out. Perception. You know, nobody sees us anymore or not as often as they used to. When you go from doing something like 50 gigs a year to, to 10 or 12 gigs a year, that's going to be the, that's the inevitable outcome. It has to be. For his part, Paddy Robinson is satisfied that the band remains secure in the affections of its traditional heartland. I think myself like it's a tradition with a lot of the, the older families in Waterford. They followed it down through maybe a generation. They never lost it and they like what the band are doing. And as long as they're there, the band will keep playing. Teddy Brett's son, Timmy, believes the future of the band is the responsibility of the members themselves to determine. Well, the band will always be here, but it's up to us as individuals to keep it going. See, we're only passing through, like, it's like, like my father was in the band for 60-plus years. He's gone now, so it's up to the rest of us to bring it forward, to keep it going, and to make it as good as well as it should be. We all have a kind of a duty and a responsibility to bring it forward, to to play the best we can for people. If they come and hear us playing, to say, that band were good, and I never thought that a band like that were in our town. And more than 66 years after he played out for the first time, perhaps the final word on the road ahead should rest with the father of the band, Jeff Brett. It'd be tragic if anything happened. It'd be a tragedy. And I, and I, I wouldn't say I have any fear of the band. As he has the youngsters in there, like, you know, that they'll keep it going. They, they will keep it going. I know they will. If the Bar Street Band had to pack the bags tomorrow and say, well, it's just impossible to keep going, I think there would be nothing missed as much in this city as that. And it's like a lot of things, you have to lose it before you really appreciate it. My, my favourite place of all of us, I, I think there's nothing nicer than uh, an afternoon in the park. And you'd always get a crowd if the weather's nice. I used to love it down there. St Pat's used to always have the sports with. And we had Kilcorn. And we never encroached one another. They're like, you know. You wouldn't be asked anyway. My father, my late father, God rest him, he said to me one day, the forest would be silent if only the sweetest birds could sing. And basically what he was saying there, everybody... Everybody has something to offer. He was coming here his time, and one of the things he'd done shortly before he died, he came in, myself himself came in here, and he took the drum apart. He left a note inside the drum. One day he said, you'll have a laugh of it. I don't know what's on it. He never told me. He said, you'll have a laugh someday, so when you'd open that. I think a bit of music brightens up things, you know, and puts a bit of life into things. Well, hopefully so, anyway. 66 years. It could be a little bit more. I do it all over again. I often remember um, the Barrack Street Concert Band playing under the trees in Barrack Street on a Sunday morning and going home and practising with knife and fork waiting for my <laughs> Sunday dinner. I remember going up on, on a, a particular Christmas morning and Mr Flannery was up there. He was fairly poorly at the time and he came out on the, the St Bridget's Ward as it is now that the one was closed and conducted the band from the first game. 
I don't know, you fall in love with it. I don't know when I did, and I don't know why, but I did fall in love with the band, and I could never see myself out of the band. I knew I was the light for at that stage. We have a band who likes to um, kind of celebrate immediately afterwards, if not during the actual competition. What would you do without bands? The world would be gone mad if you didn't have bands. Just a garden of glory, the band, wasn't it? It could do worse, I suppose. I hope it lasts forever and ever. I think it's real too. You come in, chat with the lads, sit down, have a blow. It's better, really. Lowe's knows you're the powerhouse who does it right to show your yard who's boss. We do it right, too, with innovative Craftsman string trimmers featuring easy start technology for simpler pull starts. And because you can swap out one attachment for another, you can get more done with just one tool. Shop now and add a new trimmer to your arsenal with a Craftsman two-cycle gas string trimmer for just $99. When it's time to take on the yard work, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offer valid through 320. See store for details, U.S. only. Wherever you go, however you go. For energy on the go, it's got to be 5-Hour Energy. It works fast, it works long, it tastes good, and with zero sugar and four calories, there's nothing holding you back. Fits your pocket, fits your backpack, fits your on-the-go life, whether you're going to work, going on vacation, or just going out with friends. 5-Hour Energy. Energy on the go. For more information, visit 5hourenergy.com. 